You know, I just want to echo what uh, Eric was just saying. Some of you have, have not found a home group yet. And, and I just want to tell you, you know, there's a really easy way to get a preview of what a home group is like. You know, when we do a message here, this is your preparation for small group time. When people come together in small group, what they do is they watch a video that Josh and I shoot early on Sunday morning where we're talking about this message and taking you into the application of the message itself. And so if you want to see any of those, just go to our Real Spring Creek Church YouTube channel. You can see what the video curriculum's about. You'll see the kind of questions that are asked, how we interact. And you can see, I mean, it's really, it's no biggie. We would love for you to connect because when you connect, Spring Creek really starts feeling like home. Well, we're continuing this series, How Grace is Greater. We looked at how grace is greater than our sin. Last week, grace is greater than guilt. And today, grace is greater than shame. I want to tell you a story. It's a true story. She's known as Dog Poop Girl. And I can't help it. That's what she's called. And it was this well-dressed young woman. She got on the subway, sunglasses on, ear, music thumping in her ears with her little dog in tow. And the dog was sitting at her feet. And people were getting on and off the subway. And as dogs sometimes do, it got a little anxious. And it defecated right there in the subway car. The woman, she moved her dog, her little dog, away from the pile of doo-doo. But she didn't bother to clean it up. Two stops later, she got off the train. I think we can all agree that wasn't the right thing to do, right? But unbeknownst to her, someone took a picture of the entire incident. Within the hour, that person posted it on a popular blog spot. In the afternoon, a journalist noticed it, who decided to print her picture in the evening newspaper. By this time, people on the internet had already figured out who she was and had published her address. The term for that is doxing. An international tourist on the way to the airport saw the newspaper, picked it up, read the story. When he got home, he shared it with some friends here in the U.S., they shared it then with the networks and the cable news outlets. Pretty soon, within two days of this incident, the woman's story went viral and was being told around the world. Talk show hosts had a heyday with it as people called in talking about how this woman shouldn't be allowed to run about unsupervised. There were radio call-ins where people were shaming her and calling her names. Many felt like the best punishment would be for her to lose her job. For her sanity and her security, she had to drop out of college. She had to move to a new city. Like I say, it's a true story. It's sad that this woman was irresponsible with her pet. It's also sad that this story gained the attention that it did, especially that it became a worldwide phenomenon. I don't know about you, but I'm really glad that when I was growing up, I didn't grow up in the Internet age. I'm really glad no one had a camera to document even one of the many stupid things I did that were truly cringeworthy that could have ruined my life as well. You know, just pause for a minute and think about the magnitude of this. The people shamed this woman in a way she could not escape. Newspapers blasted her photo everywhere. Television stations showed up at her house, cased her house. Radio talk shows chatted about her life, and the Internet made it go viral. Unlike television, which quickly tires of a scandal and moves on to the next one, things never die on the internet. The internet, the old story, never just burns out and joins the ash heap of history. You want proof of that? Just go online this afternoon and Google dog poop girl. 
and you will find there's an entire Wikipedia page about this young woman. This still shows her photo, tells what happened, and people still fuming about it, and people still share this story as if it happened this morning. Her digital shame will never be deleted. This single incident, yes, it was inappropriate what she did, but that will forever frame the way people view her. Did anybody at all pause or, or, or worry at all that they might be ruining this young woman's life or hounding her to suicide? I doubt it. For some people, ruining her life was the point. What I'm saying is this, is the internet and social media have combined to kind of create the perfect storm of shame. Shame has gone global and it's become permanent. No matter how far you go, no matter how long you wait, your past and your history and your shame is just one Google search away. And some people seem to really enjoy it. Shame has practically become synonymous with Twitter these days, and everyone does it. The old and the young, politicians of any stripes, moms and dads, blacks and whites, conservatives and liberals, you name it. And let me just say for the record, it's not good and it's not right. Where I'd like to begin with today is just to understand toxic shame. I want us to get our mind and our hearts wrapped around what this is we're talking about, how it happens, and then what God has to say about it. So first point is this. We're going to understand toxic shame. The first point is shame is the fear of being unlovable. When I shame someone, not only do I make them feel terrible, but I make them feel worthless. Many of you might recognize the name Brene Brown. She's a, a research professor at the University of Houston. She's written a lot and spoken a lot about shame. Her TED Talk on shame is one of the top five most viewed TED Talks online. This is how she defines it. Shame is the intense feeling of being worthless and not being worthy of love. What shaming does, when I shame someone, I threaten to withdraw my acceptance of them unless they come into conformity. The reason it works, and shaming does work, the reason it works is because God has hardwired our spirit to want to connect. We do. We want to be connected. We want to especially be connected to the people we care about that are supposed to care about us. We want to be connected. And so what I do when I shame someone, I take that deeply ingrained need for connection and I threaten it. You can express shame in three words. You don't belong. Shame says, I'm unlovable, I'm worthless, I'm unwanted. Now what's really interesting is psychologists tell us that a child has to be about six to seven years old for you to put a guilt trip on them. Because you see, a child has to be able to reason morally. They have to understand the difference between right and wrong. They have to have the ability to think abstractly. And we don't have that ability when we're very young. Our brains actually develop over time. Once that happens, you can guilt a child. That's not true about shame. You can actually experience shame as young as 12 months to 18 months of age. It's a feeling. It's an experience of being unwanted, of being unloved. So how do you know when you're doing it? And how do you know when it's been done to you? Because shame wears many disguises. It actually takes a lot of different forms. Let me just give you some examples. It can be put-downs. You're naughty. You're a selfish brat. You're nothing but a crybaby. You need to know all name-calling is a form of shaming. If you call someone a name, you're shaming them, period. End of discussion. And what we do often these days is we no longer characterize someone's behavior. We never say, hey, you just lied to me. That wasn't true. We say you're nothing but a liar. You hear the difference? 
One is what they did, the other is who they are. When we characterize someone's entire being by a single mistake or a single failure or a single happening, then we are shaming that person. It can be moralizing. Good girls don't act that way. Stop being a bad little boy. It can be related to your age. Grow up. Stop acting like a baby. Big boys don't cry. It can be gender-based. Toughen up. Quit being a sissy. It can be aimed at their competency. You're hopeless. How could you be so stupid? It can be the result of comparison. Why can't you be like so-and-so? None of the other kids are acting your way. So how common is shaming? You should know. Very. And I'm not just talking about abusive, dysfunctional families. I'm saying it happens in the best of families. You know, there was a study done of Canadian children. I, I spent a couple of months in Canada doing some work for World Vision. I would travel during the week, be home on the weekends for you. And Canadians have this reputation for being some of the nicest people on the planet. I mean, you can step on their foot, and the person you stepped on their foot will say, I'm sorry. I mean, they're just really nice people. But listen to this about Canadian households. Only 4% of these children they study, these Canadian school children, only 4% had not been the target of their parents' shaming, including rejecting, demeaning, terrorizing, criticizing destructively, or insulting statements. So why do parents shame their kids? Well, they typically do it when they're feeling overwhelmed, irritated, or frustrated. Because what shaming does is it gets almost instant compliance. If a kid is acting up, if they're screaming, if they're misbehaving, if they're doing something wrong in public and we shame them, they shut down. This is really low-level parenting. Because what we think is that the, the goal of parenting is compliance. And that's not the goal of parenting. The goal of parenting is to train our children to understand how their behavior impacts other people. So when we've been shamed repeatedly, what happens? Let's talk about the damaging effects of shame. Of all the emotions you and I can experience, shame is the one emotion, the one feeling we have for which we have no cultural appropriate expression. I mean, think about this. If you get angry, there's culturally acceptable ways of expressing that anger, you know, through your words, not striking, not acting out. If you're happy or you're sad, laughter and tears are a well-known conduit for giving expression to those emotions. But how do you express shame? The very feeling doesn't want to be expressed. In fact, that's why it's been called the secret emotion. Some of you, this is something you feel about yourself. And even though you're in relationship, maybe you're married, maybe your family really close to you, there, there are people that you really care about, but they don't know this about you. Because this is something by nature you hide. You keep it closed off. You don't share it with others. And when that happens, when we don't express feelings, what are we doing? We're repressing those feelings. And when we repress feelings, they come out in uncontrollable ways. Typically, it's one of two ways when it comes to shame. Either we experience a kind of paralysis of emotion, we kind of live in this emotional land of bland, or we become really triggered. That is, we, we, can, we, we express anger or rage at a drop of a hat. And sometimes we swing between the two. You can always count on it. When you encounter someone who is either a bully or self-deprecating, that person has been deeply shamed. Shame is also one of the powerful forces behind addiction. Shame is the soil in which addiction grows. Everyone who has a problem with addiction knows the experience of shame. I shared this with you before. This is a classic addictive cycle. Shame, pain, indulgence. We talked about it last week. So, I don't want you to be ignorant about shame. 
what it does, how it makes us feel, how we do it to one another. But I want you to look at some biblical snapshots of shame and what they teach us. Now, you should know that there are literally dozens upon dozens of stories in the Bible that illustrate for us the toxic impact of shame. Two of the biggest stories, and I'm not even going to talk about them this morning, the prodigal son, that whole story is on the shame-honor paradigm. The whole story is about that. In the Old Testament, there's a story of a young man named Mephibosheth. He's disabled, but his name means shame. His name is a derivative of shame. Powerful story about shame and how we respond to it. But I want to just show you a few snapshots today. First is Adam and Eve. And they introduced to us that shame is the first negative emotion. We looked at the creation story at the very beginning of this series, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it right now, but I want to spend enough time to show you what I didn't point out in the first message. God created man and woman, put them in a perfect environment. The Bible says this, Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So the first thing you need to know is God did not create you to experience shame. That Eden was a shame-free environment. There's not one time that Adam nor Eve thought of themselves as being deeply flawed, inferior, or unworthy of love before sin. But you know the rest of the story. The first couple was deceived, they sinned, and when they sinned, everything changed. Shame came into the picture. Look at this verse. I heard the sound of you, that I heard the sound of God in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. As soon as sin enters the picture, what's the first couple's reaction? They hide. They, they, they go into hiding. They cower. They cover themselves. Now, what does specifically Adam fear? He fears exposure of his naked self, which is exactly what shame is, isn't it? That I fear exposure. I fear for you to know exactly the way I feel about myself. I fear to think about what you might think of me. Shame is a social phenomenon. It has to do with our perceptions of ourselves and what we think other people feel about us. So for the first time in his life, he doesn't see his naked self as wonderful, but instead as something to feel shame over. And it's that fear of exposure that lies at the heart of shame. So let me add this. There is a difference between feeling shame and being shame. When Adam and Eve sinned, did God shame them? No. They experienced shame because of the decision they made. That's kind of a consequence of sin. Being shamed is something entirely different. Being shamed is taking one of the consequences of sin and trying to use it as a tool to shape somebody's behavior. It's trying to turn someone's own inner toxic dialogue against them. That's what it means to be shamed. So we learn that shame is the very first emotion ever experienced in the human family that the Bible records. Here's a second and equally powerful story, Joseph and Mary. People who are right with God don't shame others. This is what this story teaches us. So Joseph is engaged to Mary, who's the mother of Jesus, and he finds out she's with child and he's not the baby daddy. When he discovers this, they're just engaged. But to break engagement in those days required something like we consider a divorce. And so he decides he's going to divorce her, but he's going to do it quietly. Look at the Bible explain. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his, mother, uh, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together as husband and wife, uh, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. I love how the Bible explains why Joseph wouldn't shame Mary. 
It says because he's a righteous man. You know what righteousness means? Right with God. Because he's right with God, he wouldn't shame her. Even though he suspects she's done something terribly immoral, as a righteous person, he doesn't shame her. So when you see somebody who's engaged in shaming behavior, you can just know right, off, right from the beginning, they're not right with God. They're not right with God because righteous people don't shame others. And one of the reasons that a lot of people gravitate towards shaming others is this desire to feel superior. Because every time I shame someone, I put myself in a position to be their judge and to stand over them, and I put myself over them. Here's a third and very powerful fact that God doesn't shame us, and that is Rahab the harlot. I call this out of the shadows and into the light. Now, Rahab, for all time, has been linked to her profession. She's a lady of the night. She's a prostitute. She's the harlot of Jericho. In the Hebrew, the word for harlot or prostitute is zuna. The Greek word is porne, and these are the only things these terms mean. So we know, in fact, that was her profession. She was a prostitute. But I want to ask you something. What comes to mind when you think of a prostitute? I mean, what, what kind of person do you think does this sort of profession? You see, I think we have a lot of distortions around the very idea of prostitution, and I think we need some reality to temper whatever judgmental thoughts we might have. Consider just a simple fact. You know what the average age for entry into prostitution is? 14. Girls at the age of 14 don't choose a life of prostitution. Why such an early age? Because between 75% and 90% of all girls who enter into prostitution were first molested at home. One expert said it like this, prostitution is almost always a continuation of abuse which began much earlier, usually at home. So first and foremost, whatever else you might think of a prostitute, factor into the fact that this young woman has probably been sexually abused in her life. Then factor in this, women and girls in prostitution have a mortality rate 40 times higher than other women. They're the victims of violence. They're often killed 40 times higher than the average woman. A prostitute experiences this. Now, I would pretty much agree, uh, agree that, that prostitutes throughout all time have experienced what it means to be treated cheaply. If you study prostitution in the ancient world, what you discover is often the price for their service, services was about the same as a, uh, a loaf of bread and two cups of wine at a local tavern. So how do you think people treat a human being whose value is roughly the equivalent of a meal? I say all this just to factor into Rahab, because times really have not, all that in human nature has really not changed all that much, that you factor into whatever else you might think about Rahab. She's the sort of woman that everybody talked about, but nobody talked to. But her story's about to change because the children of Israel are about to enter the promised land, and the first city they encounter is Jericho. And Jericho is well defended and it's heavily fortified, and Joshua knows he needs some first-hand intelligence on this city before he goes in and they try to take it. Now, what he does is he sends these spies into the city. They're quickly discovered. And Rahab, who, who runs an inn, uh, an inn on the outskirts of town, she t decides to take these men in, hide them, and give them safe passage out of the city. She also becomes a believer in the God of heaven. Now, what's really amazing about this story to me is Rahab's knowledge of the truth was meager. What she heard from men, rumors that were circulating around them about this group of people encamped on their border and about the exploits of the Hebrew God. But somehow in the bits of pieces of information she got, she pieced together this must be the true God of heaven and she decides to believe in that God. 
Frankly, she believed it better than many of the Jewish people who experienced it firsthand. She trusts in what knowledge she has. So much so that you know that she's listed in the Great Hall of Faith, which is Hebrews chapter 11. And there's only two women mentioned in that chapter. One of them is Sarah, the wife of Abraham, the father of the faith. The other is Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. Something else you should know. Rahab is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, you need to know that ancient genealogies just didn't include women. They just didn't. It was deemed unnecessary. But if you were a woman and you happened to get mentioned, you certainly wouldn't be a woman with a checkered past. These are the women we hide. These are not the women we highlight. But God inspired Matthew to go to great lengths to highlight the very ones we would hide. He puts Rahab's name up in lights. He says, notice her, because she's one of the ancestors of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. God's telling us she's my kind of people. I excel at replacing shame with significance. He did it back then. He still does it now. You know how you recover from shame? It's when you understand that the, the ones the world discards are the very ones God displays. The ones who are invisible, God says are indispensable. What we try to hide, God chooses to showcase. So no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, no matter who in your past won't let you live down your past, God takes the walking, breathing definition of shame in a prostitute named Rahab, and he turns her into a trophy of his grace. He says, the world needs to notice this woman. The truth is, you and I wouldn't be Christians today if it weren't for Rahab. She's a part of the very channel through which God would flow the redemption of humankind. If she was missing from that channel, we wouldn't have had Jesus. So let that sink in. We have the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, because of a prostitute who trusted Jesus Christ, who trusted in this God of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The perpetual unclean woman is another story I want to tell you about. And this reminds us that God's got a name for you. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story of this woman who has an uncontrollable and constant menstrual flow for 12 years, which meant not only is she sick, but she's likely in chronic pain, right? Can you imagine a period that lasts for 12 years? I mean, I'm no female, but, but I've been around my wife, and I have two girls. I've, I've, I know what that time of the month is like for them, and here she's got to do this 12 years. And we're also told that her family has exhausted every bit of money they have to try to find a cure, so now they're out of money and now they're out of hope. Luke, who happens to be a physician by trade, says the woman's disease is incurable. So no place that she is allowed to go because she has this discharge of blood, everywhere she sits, everywhere she sleeps, everywhere she rests becomes contaminated with her blood, so the Jewish community considered her unclean. That means she's not allowed in public for 12 years. That means nobody touches her for 12 years, lest they risk becoming unclean too. Can you imagine not being touched, not being hugged, not being kissed for 12 years? She's an outcast. Something else about this story, she's nameless. We don't know her name. Matthew, Mark, Luke, none of them record her name. And that seems to be intentional because it's connected again to this shame. She's invisible to people. And this is as much her choice as it is everybody else's choice because shame does this to people. It makes us want to hide lest we experience more shame. Because imagine if she ventures out into public with the judgmental attitudes of everybody around her, she's just told she's an unclean woman, get away. So here's her dilemma. She's not supposed to be in public. She's not supposed to touch other people. 
but she's heard about Jesus the healer. He's in her town. So clandestinely, she sneaks into the crowd, and the Bible says she reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. And that word touch is not touch, it's grabbed. She grabs onto Jesus' robe like it's a lifeline. And Jesus says, who touched me? Now, Peter, the brilliant one, says, who didn't touch you, Jesus? I mean, look, we're in a crowd right now. (laughs) But Jesus can understand the difference between the indiscriminate touch of the multitude and the touch of faith. He knows that somebody has touched him who needed to touch him. And the woman steps out of the crowd, and Jesus says to her, daughter, not stranger, not ma'am, not sister, not friend. He chooses the most intimate term he can think of. By the way, this is the only place in all the Gospels where Jesus does this. Chooses a very intimate term. The woman that nobody knows, Jesus calls her daughter, my child, my family. The name nobody knows, Jesus knows. Jesus has skipped the personal name and he's gone to the intimate nickname here. That's what Jesus does with the unwanted. He finds us in our pain and in our shame and he calls us his beloved. Jesus is calling you his daughter, his son today. He wants you to know that you're not damaged, second rate, or unworthy of love. Instead, you're precious in his sight. You gotta stop listening to your past. You gotta start listening to him. Now, people who are experts in shame and its recovery tell us that two things have to happen to recover from shame, and both of these things are right here in this story. Number one, we need to speak our shame. Once Jesus finds the woman, he invites her to tell her story. You know why? Because suffering must be spoken to be broken. It's one thing to be in pain. All of us experience pain in our life. Suffering goes beyond pain. Suffering is the combination of the pain and our explanation to ourselves why we're going through it. That's our suffering. And if we want to break the grip of suffering, we have to come out of the shadows, out of the darkness, out of our hiding places, and tell our story. And if we tell our story, it breaks the power of shame because the power of shame is in its secrecy. The second thing that needs to happen is we need to lift our head. Jesus literally down, reaches down, lifts the woman's head. Why is this significant? Because this is the posture of shame, isn't it? We all know it. Because when I'm looking down, I'm not only looking within and being introspective and and self-recriminating, but I'm disconnecting from everybody else. I'm not looking you in your eye. I'm not connecting with family. I'm not connecting with world. I'm not connecting with friends. I'm in my own little world. And Jesus raises her head to join the rest of us and says, you're in the family, precious daughter. Who are you? You are not who others say you are. And you are not who you say you are. And you are not what anybody ever did to you. You're not unlovable. You're not insignificant. You're not worthless. You're not unwanted. I am who Christ says I am. I am forgiven. I am free. I am loved. I'm redeemed. I'm healed. I'm brand new. I'm chosen. This is who I am because this is who Jesus declared me to be. To be healed of the shame we experience, we have to know the truth about who we are in Christ. The Bible says when we give our life to Jesus as our forgiver and our redeemer, there's some things that become true of us. I've made a list. At one point in our church, we actually put this list on a little card about the size of a credit card so people could keep it with them all the time and remind themselves about the truth of who they actually were in Jesus. You're not condemned. You are accepted. You're ransomed. You're a new creation. These are all statements God makes about the believer. 
You are the righteousness of God. You are liberated. You are chosen, holy, and blameless before God. You're redeemed. You're alive. You have boldness and confident access to God. You have all of your needs supplied. Your life is hid with God in Christ. This is your new identity. How do you appropriate it? Well, there's three things that have to happen. Number one, you have to know the truth. Jesus says you'll know the truth, and the truth will do what? Set you free. You got to know the truth. You know, some of us, we don't know the truth about ourselves. We know the lies. We know the lies we've told ourselves. We know the lies that have been told us by other people, but we don't know the truth. You know what you need to do? Online, we have this entire list. If you go to the Spring Creek Church website, look at expanded notes, you can find this list. Copy it, print it out, stick it on your refrigerator, stick it up in your office cubicle, fold it up, put it in your wallet, whatever you have to do, keep this with you until you know the truth. Know the truth about what God has declared about you. Then the second thing you got to do, you got to believe the truth. You got to believe it. You got to believe that what God said about you is more true than what anybody else has ever said about you. You believe that truth. That truth migrates from here down to here. I believe it. I believe it. And then the third thing you got to do, you got to live the truth. You see, this is not just a matter of a head trip with God. This is a matter of this truth is the truest thing about me. You see, when, you're li- when you live like you're worthless, you're a piece of garbage, that you don't matter, that you're insignificant, you know what you're living? You're living a lie. That's nothing but a big old lie. You're not living the truth. But when you live what God has said about you, then you're really living the truth. You see, this is, a, this is something I have to tell you because some of us, when we're living our lie, we feel like that's our truth. And so we start living according to these principles and the enemy says, well, that's not really true about you. You don't even feel that. You know, tell the enemy and your feelings to take a hike. Because what God said about you is the truest thing about you. And when you live that, you're really living the truth. So what's your challenge right now? Is it knowing the truth? You just don't know these truths about yourself? Then learn them. Meditate on them. Spend time with them. Believe the truth. Really trust that what God says is true. And then begin to live it like it is true. Because it is. So let me wrap up with a true story. Four years ago, the Associated Press ran a story, a very moving story, about the unwanted girls of Mumbai, India. Now here's what the story is about. At their birth, their parents gave these girls a commonly used name, a name that sort of said it all. More than 280 girls were given the name Nakusi or Nakushi. Sounds like a pretty name, doesn't it? You know what it means? Unwanted. Can you imagine a parent, even a single parent, naming their child unwanted? But here, in this one tiny community, 280 girls were named unwanted. Why? If you don't know this, India is a country that aborts thousands upon thousands of girls every year due to, among other reasons, the financial cost of a dowry. You see, the average family has to go deeply in debt just to provide a wedding dowry for their daughter to get married. On top of that, there's religious reasons on top of that, and that is that Only a son is allowed to light a funeral pyre that sends their parents into the afterlife. As a result, many girls are born unwanted. And their birth is met with sadness at best and abandonment at worst. So there's literally hundreds of thousands of girls named Nakusi in India. Kept by their families, but reminded every single day that they were not wanted. So in this particular town, district officials realized what a grave injustice this was and gave these girls an opportunity to legally change their name. And so the Associated Press said this, 285 girls in this particular district 
where the idea of a new name was instituted, flocked to the renaming ceremony on this banner day, wearing their best outfits with berets, braids, and bows decorating their hair. These girls, age 8 to 15, saw the opportunity to change their name from unwanted to something they would really like. I don't know, that breaks my heart. Maybe you weren't named unwanted, but there's a part of you that has come to believe that you just don't belong, that you were not wanted. I debated whether or not I'd tell this story, but I decided I better do it. My mom and dad, they met in high school. They were both drummers. They were both in the band. And they got sexually involved before they got married. And my sister was the result. And you can imagine in the late 50s, my sister was born early in 1960. In the late 50s, there was a lot of stigma with out-of-wedlock children. They went to live with my mom's folks. And of course, there was a lot of pressure. You guys have made a mistake. Don't make no more, more mistakes. Don't have any more kids. You know, you need to get your feet under you. You need to get established. You need to get jobs. And imagine what a lot of parents would say if their children had been in the same circumstances. But the thing that really was said to my mom again and again, don't get pregnant, don't get pregnant, don't get pregnant. And before my sister was a year old, she was pregnant with me. And she felt like, because of all the shame that they'd experienced as an unwed couple and having a baby, and all the pressure from the family, she just couldn't share the reality that she was pregnant with me. That nobody wanted me. And my mom did something I think was beyond her spiritual maturity at the time, but she prayed and she said, God, maybe nobody else wants this baby but me and you. But I'm going to give him to you for all the days of his life. And my mom did that for me when I was in the womb. Now, she didn't tell me this story until I was a freshman in Bible college studying for the ministry. And she said, I gave you to the Lord a long time ago. You belong to him. There's something about shame. I, I don't know what I picked up on as a little baby. I have no conscious memory of being shamed at that time. But that feeling that shame has cut deep grooves in my life of not belonging, not fitting in, not being accepted, not being loved. I know about that damage. I know what it's like to, to take on a life of pleasing other people just to try to find my place in this world. But I also know this. My mom did the one best thing she could have done for me. She gave me to the one who never abandons, always loved, never gave up on me, understood my significance, and chose that he would use me in all of my weaknesses and limitations to share a message with other people that they matter too. And that's my prayer for you. My prayer for you is that you would know the God of heaven who loves you, who does not abandon, who thinks you're pretty special, looks in your eyes, calls you his son or his daughter. Don't leave here not knowing him. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your tender heart toward each and every one of us. God, thank you no matter what we have done and no matter what's been done to us. No matter the words spoken into our life that were toxic and debt left deep wounds, no matter, God, 
how it is that society has treated us and the names we've been called, you have a name that's far more precious. You say, your family, you're my son, you're my daughter. You matter to me. You matter so much that I would send my son, that he would die a death no one would ever want to die. He would die in our place and take sin's penalty and crush sin's shame so that we could be free. So God, if there's someone who doesn't know you here today, may they reach out just right now with the arm of faith and say, Jesus, I want this in my life. I want to know what it's like to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to know that I am loved and valued just the way I am. God, I pray for that miracle and I pray for believers like myself who for many years have had deep grooves of shame cut into their soul that we would not only know the truth, but we would believe it. That we would not only believe the truth, but we would live it. In Jesus' name, amen.